Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Language isn't just descriptive. People who understood the land and baptized the land with its names and knew the land much better than uh, I ever will um, gave those names for a purpose. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with John Gower. John is principally an author, a broadcaster and correspondent. He's published over 40 books and his passion and enthusiasm for reading, writing and language seem to form the backbone of who and what he is. This conversation didn't play out as I planned it, although if I'm totally honest, I hadn't really planned it all that much. We were due to be talking about John's new book, but in the end got stuck into a deep conversation about the Welsh language, the importance of language, and how understanding the names of places can give us a deeper sense of the place we live or are visiting. John told me that he was confused as to why I want him on the podcast, when he doesn't really do anything adventurous. I told him that it's not all about base jumping, and that I'm interested in the why and the how rather than just the what of things, and that writing about a place and a connection to that landscape is an adventure in and of itself. Ultimately, he agreed, and off we went. He then went on to tell me some genuinely wild tales of adventure and exploration, so I have no idea where he got that initial idea from. Before we begin, I'd like to mention that we're on Patreon. So if you're a regular listener to the podcast and would like to access extra content, including InVision interviews and monthly sit-downs with me and a guest, then you can find us on Patreon at The Adventure Podcast. I'd also like to talk to you about Sidetrack Magazine, our sister publication. Sidetrack is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. The same as us, they're big believers in story over hype, and their written words and incredible images have been a huge inspiration for me over the years. You can find out more at sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organisation working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help, and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to John Gower. Right, we'll probably just dive in. So I think a logical place to start would be to just ask you to introduce yourself and to tell me who you are and what you do. Uh, my name is John Gower. I'm 63 years of age. Um, I've got 40 books to my name. Um, I was trained as a journalist. Um, I've managed to keep an inquiring mind that I developed very sharply as a kid alive. So basically, I'm a little kid trapped in a man's body trying to find out a bit more about the world. And um, it seems to work really because uh, when I was a kid, I not only was curious, 
But I'll tell you the story. Um, about five years ago, I went to my hometown of Snessy. So that's another biographical detail. Uh, because the newscaster, Hugh Edwards, wasn't able to turn up. So I've done quite a few gigs where I turn up when he was not available. Anyway, um, in this lunchtime uh, talk that I was meant to give, a very, very old man turned up. I mean, someone in his 90s. And it turned out to be my primary school teacher called Mr. Thomas. And I wanted to tell him that we used to call him Tommy Tomatoes, but I think he knew that. Anyway, he brought with him my essay book, the first essays I wrote in English. So I went to Welsh language uh, primary school. We learnt English as a foreign language. So when I was preparing for the 11 plus, I wrote uh, my first essay. And my first essay started, when I grow up, I want to be a writer. And this man, for some reason, had kept that series of essays for all those years to give them to me. It was almost as if he'd stayed alive to give them to me. So, you know, when I trace it back, uh, even from, you know, a very early age, I used to love reading. I used to love that odd communion that happens between yourself and an author. And somehow I managed to match up um, a love of reading with a desire to write and then um, started doing it. And what is it that you, maybe in two questions, what is it that you initially loved about reading and writing and what is it that you now love? Um, I suppose um, when I started reading, I was reading in what was literally my mother tongue. I was reading in the Welsh language, and I think after my family, my, the second thing I love most in the world is the Welsh language. It'd be that or nature, and I wouldn't like to have to choose between them. Um, and very specifically, it wasn't the fact it was my mother tongue, but it was the language in which I first encountered stories, and they were from my grandfather. My grandfather is easily the most important person I've ever had in my life, ever met. His name was Thomas John Gower. He was an old uh, miner, a coal miner. Um, but before he became a coal miner, he lied about his age. So when he was 15, he persuaded the Merchant Navy that he was 16 and joined a ship and left the small uh, South Walian port of Burryport and went off to Kamchatka in Siberia. This was at the tail end of the Russian Revolution. Um, England and France were worried about uh, uh, the Bolsheviks yielding power and control to the Germans. So they sent some soldiers up there, and he took um, supplies up uh, for the soldiers. So my grandfather had a really small role, uh, as I like to see it, at the tail end of the Russian Revolution. Anyway, he came back to Wales. Um, as I said, he became a coal miner, but actually ran a one-man mine. He had a tunnel, basically, which he chiseled out of the bowels of the earth and went out not just um, under the earth, but out under the Burry Estuary. He had a, a coal mine, a one-man coal mine, under the sea. Uh, you'd have thought at the end of a hard-working day as a coal miner, he'd have chosen not to have a second job, but he and my grandmother ran what was reputedly one of the roughest pubs in Pembrey at the time. 
um, sufficiently rough that uh, on one occasion my grandfather's skull was broken when he was thrown over the banisters of the place and he landed on his head and the person who threw him over the banisters was my grandmother. They were quite a pair, the two of them, but anyway... My grandfather would tell me stories. He was very old when I first met him. He was well into his 80s when I was a kid old enough to listen to his stories. Um, He told me um, the same stories over and over again, but always changed them a little bit. Um, And he always told me something else. He said, books are important. Um, he you know, he kept on saying how important books were, how they would guide you through the world, how you would meet extraordinary people, how you would share the thoughts of brilliant people. And this was not just an encouragement, but an encouragement from the first storyteller I ever encountered. The thing about my grandfather, Thomas John Gower, is that um, after his death, I realized something really important about all this stuff about books. He himself was illiterate, but he knew there was something in books that was important, um, and he was the person who encouraged me to go to the local library, a library that had been built with money given by miners who would you know, donate a, a sum of money every week because they all realised that education was important, libraries and books gave them and us power, um, and so my my grandfather gave me that notion that you could tell a story and tell a story well and also change it if needs be to make it even better. <laughs> what a sensational introduction. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. And I don't know if now's the right time, maybe it is, but I think it's really important to talk to you about the Welsh language, which is something I've never discussed on the podcast before. And I think it's particularly relevant, you know, for a sort of adventure outdoor audience because of the recent decision to sort of, I say change, to perhaps deliberately incendiary, but change the names back to um, the Welsh names of the, of the mountains, Snowdon, et cetera. They're going to reclaim their old names. Um, it almost sounds like a stupid question to say, why is the Welsh language so important to you? But I think, why is it important to you? And is it in trouble? Um, the Welsh language has been in trouble historically at different times. Um um, there used to be million speakers uh, because of things like the hemorrhaging of um, soldiers during the First World War. It took steep decline. Um, the, the the language is um, you know currently spoken by six hundred thousand people. Um, we have a Welsh government which is has set its sights on making sure that we have a million speakers into the future. Um, in some ways, um, it's fairly safe. Uh, let me give you the best example I can think of. Um, I went to the first Welsh language primary school in the country ever, ever, ever. So the redoubtable Miss Olwyn Williams looked after what was basically an experiment. We were all guinea pigs for this experiment, and it was a very, very small school uh, named after the patron saint of Wales. It's called Ascaldewi Sant. Now my own kids Uh, When they went to primary school, the primary school was 550 uh, students and I was half a mile away from another school with 550 students and that in the city of Cardiff, which had its first Welsh language classes in schools in the late 1940s when I think they had fewer than 10 people. 
uh, there. Now, all over the city, there are um, primary schools, and of course, they feed into secondary schools. And you could, if you chose to, do your degree in astrophysics in a university in Wales through the medium of Welsh. You can certainly train to be a doctor through the medium of Welsh. Uh, we now have a Welsh language TV channel. We have um, two BBC radio channels in Welsh. There's a thriving publishing industry. Um, on the face of it, things are looking okay. Uh, but there are problems. Uh, it's one thing to learn a language in school. It's another to speak it once you step outside of the uh, school gates. Um, so that's a problem, especially when, um, through no fault of their own, many of the parents who send their kids to uh, Welsh schools uh, and do so often because, you know, bilingual education is a good thing and is often better um, but they don't th themselves speak Welsh at home. So the language is a bit academic. It's not quite like learning Latin, um, but it's, um, it's difficult in that sense. But I think that what you're talking about is another threat, which is, um, you know, the names of places are under siege. They're disappearing. Well, you know, one will have disappeared today. Um, a place with an absolutely, not just magical, lovely, romantic name, but an essential name may be changed. Um, uh, some years ago, I walked across my home county of Carmarthenshire in the winter deliberately um, to see, well, I was writing a, a, a chapter for a book um, and we were doing a pilgrimage in, in uh, stages. I walked across the county in the winter but I was really keen to see whether Wales had changed very much since the days when George Borrow in the 1840s wrote Wild Wales, because when he was walking, he was always encountering tinkers and people taking machines around to sharpen knives on farms. And, you know, the roads were really busy. Um, I didn't meet a single soul. Maybe it was because of winter, but I didn't meet a single soul. But I did go to one village where all the names of the houses had been changed from Welsh names to English names. Now, the house names not necessary for life in the countryside, but most of the features on an OS map um, are essential. They're not just um, uh, pretty names. They're descriptive. They'll tell you where you are. They'll tell you where the next feature of the landscape is. Um, if you want to find, or maybe avoid boggy ground, avoid a place which includes the word Gwern, because Gwern is the name for Alder, and the alder tree, of course, likes marshy ground and so on. So the language isn't just descriptive. People who understood the land and baptized the land with its names and knew the land much better than uh, I ever will um, gave those names for a purpose. Um, I'll just, just get an OS map down off the, off the shelf and we'll see how this takes us. Okay, just because you mentioned uh, Snowden or Uyva, of course, the OS maps are um, bilingual now. Um, if I just um, go to look at um, just the names to begin with, okay, I just think that um, if I just read them slowly, I will instantly create a found poem. Proskadvan, Penefrith, Moil Travan, Bulchelin, Manithakilguin, Kaironnoi. Castell Cair Onnoi. Let me stop there. Onnoi, um, the, the W-Y bit of a name, right? W-Y, like Conoi or Cair Onnoi, signifies a river. Um, that 
therefore, is a way of actually knowing that Caer, which is a castle, Caer Onnoy, maybe belonged to someone called Onnoy, maybe didn't. But let me take it a stage further. I'll tell you where there is a stream called the Onnoy. Uh, there's a stream called the Onnoy near the village of Talgareg in Cardiganshire, in Ceredigion. Uh, the Onnoy flows into the river Klettur, um, and the reason I know about this little stream, it's a sort of fierce Welsh stream in winter, and then it becomes a sort of rather torpid, slow, sluggish bit of uh, water in the summer, is because my daughter, my youngest daughter, is called Onnoy. There aren't many Onnoys around, but all of a sudden, so if you want a connection, I've just literally picked a map off the shelf. I've literally just tried to show you the beauty inherent in the language. I've told you that there's information in the language, but also there's a deeply personal connection because the name Onnoy was given to my uh, youngest daughter because when I was in my 40s, as a person who was adopted, I went to look for my natural mother. I left it too late, but I found that my my mother's name was Martha Mary Onnoy Matthias. So we have kept my natural mother's name alive in my daughter, and I don't. I never met my mother. I have a sense of her restlessness. Uh, she was she was a wanderer and didn't stay in one place very often. Um, and I like to think that my daughter Onnoy's restlessness is um, is there intellectually rather than that she's going to be a vagabond. So all of a sudden, um, what's in a name? Well, I would suggest sometimes volumes. It's just so amazing. I mean, I wasn't expecting to hear that or get that answer. And it, I just think it speaks so much to that sense of place, which I often talk about on this podcast, I think partly because I lack it so deeply. Um, and that's a whole different conversation. But to what extent do you think that the language, your language, gives you that sense of place in Wales? Well, to begin with, when I, when I, you know, when I walk somewhere or just go in a car somewhere, um, to begin with, I have the basics to tell me that um, the car is heading towards a Ford because the word Freed comes up. So Freed Amman, Amman, Ford, and so on. So there are those basic things. And I just think that, you know, if you live in Wales, you know, it would be a good idea to equip yourself with just those basic things because all of a sudden it just gives you an extra layer of meaning. So if you know that Morva Bachan means little marsh, all of a sudden the world expands. And I think that that's what language does. Um, I think that, you know, if you speak English, you're speaking a minestrone soup of language which takes words from all over. So if you wake up in the morning uh, in a bungalow, you're using a Hindi word. If you have yogurt, it's a Turkish word. If you put on an anorak, it's an Inuit word. If you go for rendezvous, it's a French word. It's all those things, yeah? And because of the magpie nature of the English language, it's become a big, expansive beast, and it just pulls in loads of things into its hungry maw, and it's got an insatiable appetite, and that doesn't even include the words that we just keep on having to make up. Um, with the Welsh language, of course, it's a smaller language. Um, we don't have lots and lots and lots of words for the same thing as you often have in English. We have lots of synonyms. Um, you know, you can say in English uh, for the word prophetic, you can say vaticinatory, uh, oniric, um, and so, uh, you know, uh, oracular, um, there's a whole list of them. In Welsh, we don't have that. 
But what we do have is a way of putting them all together, a bit like um, German does, um, to describe the the world around us. Um, So, you know, how deep is the Welsh language? Well, I dream in it, I think, if I'm in any way aware of uh, language. Um, When I met my second wife, um, I'd made a list of the things that my life partner should have, and in fact, needed to have um and the welsh language was top of the list and so my now wife and we've been together for 21 years and haven't fallen out about anything but that's a different story my uh, wife of over 20 years standing who comes from oakland california did happen at the age of six (laughs) to learn welsh so that our life journeys could um, coalesce and we could meet and uh, therefore be happy. So what what is it about the Welsh language? Well, it actually brings you beautiful women as well as everything else. <laughs> and then, oh God, that has thrown me. Um, but I think, is it true to say that you've written books in both Welsh and English? Yeah, I sort of, um, I often take them in turn, really. I'll, I'll write a book in Welsh and then in English. Um, and I also like to write in different forms. So, you know, if I've just written a novel, I may turn to nonfiction. Um, um, it's just a way of, you know, keeping the brain active, really, because, you know, telling stories, there's a basic function to telling stories, which is true the world over and everybody knows how to do it because we're all doing it all the time. Even if, you know, you know, how do you, how was your day? You don't just give the bare facts, you turn it into a little story. Um, and I think the Israeli novelist David Grossman came up with the best um, definition of fiction and uh, story that I ever came across. It's really simple. In um, one of his novels, one character asks another character and they say, um, what is um, the heart of fiction? And the answer is, what next? You know, we're always finding out what next. And that's what a story is. You say something and then, you know, if the beast is in the forest and there's a little boy running away from it, you just want to know whether the little boy is going to get it, get away uh, from it. So, um, um, yeah, there's, a, there's my grandfather's delight in telling a story married with an absolute uh, delight in language. In the novels I write, you wouldn't come to my novels to get deep psychological understanding of the character like you would in a you know, French novel, go to Flaubert for that. Um, what you will get is um, someone who just delights in language. And if there's a quality to the language, uh, if there's a test to it, is is it euphonious? Does it delight the ear? Does it sound nice? So basically what I'm admitting to is I'm a failed poet. Um, I'd love to write in Kanghanedd, which is a, a really complex a Welsh language verse form. Uh, the Princeton Encyclopedia of Poetics describes it as one of the most complicated verse forms in the world. And garage mechanics can do it. Um, university professors can do it. I have tried, but I've never mastered it. So as some sort of recompense, I um, I write what I hope is some kind of musical prose. I'll often try out, if I'm writing a sentence or whatever, you know, I'll I don't speak it out aloud, but I'll speak it out aloud in my head. And I think, oh, just to get a little cadence, to get a little sound in, to get a little, little r- ripple of um, of um, music in there, I'll just swap the words around. So I think uh, over the years, as I get the hang of writing, um, I think I've developed that sort of musical ear, really. Um, so I know that if a sentence jars, 
I can fix it by listening to the sound of it um, without necessarily losing the sense of it. And so with that in mind, does it feel like a chore to write in English? No, not at all. I um, I was lucky enough to you know study English uh, at university. Uh, I learnt when I left university. I wasn't the you know the most diligent student, I have to admit. Um, but what I did learn was that my university education didn't stop there, and that I would carry on uh, reading and ultimately uh, writing. And the other thing that I did learn as well is that you know I, we 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 live in a world of um, a podcast and uh, audio books and all the rest of it. But I'm of that age when I just you know love books as objects, as a tactile uh, object. And when I sort of try and trace that back, um, I mentioned my grandfather and how he encouraged me to go and get books. But um, um, the library I went to was the one of the smallest libraries in Wales because uh, I grew up in a village called Pwll, and uh, Pwll means hole, technically. Um, but it was actually a sort of hole or a sort of pool in the, in the estuary because I grew up on the South Wales Coast. Anyway, um, the Miners Library, which was uh, in the community centre, um, I first went there and read the children's books, which was a curious array of books, considering we were in a well-speaking part of Carmarthenshire, because lots of the books were about the fag end of the British Empire, you know, Biggles books and, you know, the Richmond Crompton books and St. Trinian's and books about public schools. Well, they weren't really relevant to, to me, but I, I read them all anyway. And then there was the classics, um, and there's a sort of wall of those, and I diligently read my way through all of them. Um, and then there was non-fiction, and non-fiction included, bearing in mind this was Carmarthenshire, a copy of The Birds of Surrey, and just to show that I was, you know, I would read anything. I was absolutely out to devour books. I can still remember learning about mandarin ducks on Virginia water in Surrey and how there were breeding hobbies, which didn't certainly fly around anywhere in Carmarthenshire. And I also remember another book which I got very excited about, which was called How to Breed Marmosettes. And I would have got myself a pair until I got to the chapter which said how quickly they bred. And I think I'd have filled Carmarthenshire with marmosettes had I actually bought them. But anyway... The real stuff was in the L shape that filled up the rest of the room, which was called fiction. And on it, you know, I didn't know what fiction was. I had no idea what the word fiction meant. I just knew that there was fiction on two walls. It was obviously a popular section, or you know, there were loads of books there. And the first book I took off the shelf, and I must have been about because I'd read the classics when I was around sort of 11, 12. So I must have been ooh, pre-pubescent, pubescent. I think it's a factor in this story. So I reached for a book on the shelf, and it had a scantily dressed woman on the cover. It was Onward Virgin Soldiers, a novel by um, Leslie Thomas. Uh, was it Leslie Thomas? Anyway, it's one of, the, one of that um, ilk. And um, I thought, ooh, this is interesting. Fiction has got almost naked ladies on the cover. And I'll, I'll fess up now, I'll confess to this. There was a, a rather formidable-looking lady who worked as the part-time librarian in the Poot Library, and I couldn't take the book out. So I snuck it underneath my jacket and basically not stole it, because I did eventually take it back, but I borrowed it. It was like a, And then I did the sort of shuffle of shame out. But it was at that point that I discovered fiction. I thought, oh, this is good. And it turned out to be, obviously, 
much better than just Onward Virgin Soldiers. It introduced me to, you know, all the great uh, writers, including, I'll just mention this story because it comes to me, including Gabriel Garcia Marquez. So Gabriel Garcia Marquez was one of the, you know, best, best, best writers I encountered when I was um, in my uh, college years. Um, I read 100 Years of Solitude one night, finished it at 4 o'clock in the morning, and then read it through straight away and finished at 12 o'clock. So this book was really, really important to me. When I then met my wife-to-be, my second wife, that is, Sarah, um, I needed to see whether she fitted in with the list I'd drawn up of things I wanted in a soulmate. And we got on to the subject of books because I needed to make sure that she liked books because we would be well-nigh incompatible if she didn't. And when we got on to the subject of 100 Years of Solitude, she recited in its entirety at our first dinner date uh, my favourite passage from 100 Years of Solitude. I thought one of my mates has set me up here. They've got this woman to learn this piece of Gabriel Garcia Marquez. You know, it was it seemed so contrived, but it was also a sign. And um, luckily, I believe in signs. Yeah, I was going to come on to that later, and I think it's part of the outdoor nature side of you know some of the books you've written. But do you consider yourself spiritual? Um, oh yeah, but not in a. So I went to chapel three times on a Sunday. Um, I had a sort of formal, non-conformist upbringing. Um, that sort of came to an end when um, we had youth club one Tuesday and we were encouraged to bring in our favourite records. And I took in, uh, maybe pretentiously, maybe wrongly, um, Tales from Topographic Oceans, uh, the Yes Prog Rock double album. Um, When I put it on, the minister told me to take it off again. It wasn't exactly the devil's own music, was it? It wasn't the blues, it wasn't raucous. It was pretentious, but it wasn't raucous. Um, And he told me to take it off. And then I said, well, no, you've invited us to bring in our favourite records. And it resulted in him actually decking me. He punched me to the floor. And that was the point at which I decided I didn't really want to go to chapel anymore because there was a degree of hypocrisy involved there that um, I couldn't stomach. So I... You know, if if you ask me to describe, you know, what I am, then I would actually have to describe myself as a pantheist. Um, I see God in nature. Uh, there are times when I've I remember standing on the top of Dinas Vaudoy in um, um, on one of those wint- wintry days when the icicles on the um, uh, the wire are sort of ninety degrees or whatever, and just the the mist peeled away, and I could see. It seems if I could see all of Wales, there was that delusion. I, I'm sure I could have seen several counties. Um, I don't know if I saw the Wicklow Hills, but I think I imagined I saw the Wicklow Hills. And at moments like that, moments of complete and utter transcendence, I feel a part of it all. It's just one of those things where, you know, you read nowadays, and we're reading increasingly books about... Um, Oh, the value of forests and woodland. I think of, um, I know, the novels of Richard Powers, the nature writing of Roger Deakin. I'm just reading a book about um, a guy recreating uh, uh, an Atlantic rainforest in the the west of Cork. Um, And yes, it's problematic. All this rewilding stuff is problematic. But when you walk into a wood, or sometimes when you stand on top of a mountain, 
it is not just very good for you, it is very good for your soul. It's not just a matter of mental health or better health or whatever. You can feel as one with something bigger than yourself. And if you're wise, um, that will make you humble. You will see yourself as the smallest cog. Um, You will look at the rocks beneath your feet and think, my God, uh, the biblical, you know, 70 years or whatever, uh, three score years and 10 is as nothing. It's just, it's not even a a nanosecond in the great order of things. Um, But also, it can be, if we're a little bit wise, a reminder that um, we have our place and part in this. And that, um, especially because we now live in the Anthropocene and all of a sudden we are changing the world and changing it too quickly for nature even to begin to catch up, we can play our part in small ways to at least, um, I'm not sure, slow down the decline. At, at the moment, I think it's just alerting people to the decline. But nature... Um, which is under threat, is part of the solution. When I was um, in 1974, if I could find it, no, I I would. In 1974, I kept a diary. Um, I was really meticulous. I would keep a diary noting every nest I found, um, every bird I saw. I'd walk the same bits every um, day. Not scientifically, it's just that if I went out the back garden and then so took the old tram line it would take me through several habitats um, it was a great place to go bird watching because there were sand dunes there was an estuary there were, there were pine trees there was a um, an overgrown tram line so you had loads of you know songbirds and all that stuff like that in 1974 along that tram line i found five separate um song thrush nests I was really good at finding nests in those days. I, I couldn't do it now. It's a skill I've lost. Anyway, um, if I now saw a song thrush, if I saw a song thrush through the, the window of my study here, which one does occasionally come, it would be a red-letter day. So in my lifetime, over 50 years, that's just half a century, things that were common, and I mean really common, and are really scarce. Um, and that is true for so many things. And um, it, it hurts me that um, I would now have to make an enormous effort to show my youngest daughter, who wrote her, she wrote her first book when she was nine, she wrote a bird book in Welsh. But in order for her to see some of the things in that book, we had to make an effort, whereas I think when I was growing up, I would have just gone out for a short walk and seen them. I know it swings and roundabouts, I know it's delightful to be able to say that sometimes we have not just one, but two black caps a female and a male which come to the quince tree in the garden and it's a lovely thing but that's because the climate has changed the chiff chaffs that now are there'll be a few of them at the moment on um kidwelly key near my home they're there and over wintering because things have changed uh when i grew up i wouldn't have ever seen a little egret now, of course, little egrets are nesting and Mediterranean gulls and all the rest of these have followed from the continent and are moving up. It's it's really interesting. It's making the avifauna of the UK bigger, but it is at some cost because uh, some things are disappearing. And um, that saddens me profoundly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, at risk of doing a soapbox speech, I think part of the problem is almost like unconscious apathy. You know, we don't realize, I didn't realize it it was by accident that I sort of started on the journey of realization, 
how much things have drastically changed. You know, you travel through any forest in Britain and you think it's a forest and that's brilliant and wonderful, but it's not what it was and it's not what it should be. And I use should be extremely specifically. I am fairly militant with it. That book you're reading about the Atlantic rainforest, I'm halfway through it too. And we might be we might be at the same point, really. <laughs> I'm, I'm finding it, um, you know, absolutely delightful. But it's moved from being delightful now to being very cogent and solid in looking at what rewilding means. And of course, you know, what he's proposing is not turfing farmers off the land or turning the clock back. It, he's actually looking at how you actually make a plausibly better future where communities could still live in these places and still you know um keep the culture because in wales if you're talking about rewilding it becomes a matter of culture as well as the economics of farming it's a great book and we could talk about that for ages and but yeah but that's a subject that you know there are now quite a few books about rewilding there are now you know more people actually exploring it looking at you know introducing things at the top of the food chain the sort of big predators and all the rest of it but as you know from reading that book uh, time is short it's of the essence and these things need to to happen pretty quickly and um you know a forest doesn't happen overnight you know you say you, you walk you go around and you think oh yeah you know you notice woodlands well you know, Wales at one point was one big wildwood. It was about 90% uh, woodland cover. Um, it was a great big wildwood. And then it's changed. And of course, one of the things we've now, not created, but one of the things we've inherited is that many of the places which are now important wildlife habitats, let's take a reed bed, is actually a habitat in transition. So ultimately, a reed bed would become an older thicket. So that's the sort of thing whereby we've now got lots of, you know, we do have to have a balancing act because we do need to have bitterns as well as the birds that would nest in, in woodland. But I think also in uh, in the book about the Atlantic rainforest, one of the other things that is pointed out is that conservation groups um, are all in themselves really interested in their thing, you know, so the ornithologists want to make sure that they look after, you know, the um, bearded tit and the capercaillie and all the rest of it, which is great. But then you've got the butterfly camps and the lichen camps and the mycologist versus the, and it's not, it's not an either or thing. What that book tells us is what we need to think of is uh, in terms of complete ecosystems, yeah, and nature will itself sought out the ecosystem, which may involve some sacrifices even of species. Yeah, and it, you know we could, as you say, talk for hours on this, and it's incredibly complex. Um, but, and I think this is just from a personal perspective, I, you know, when I first started, I fell in love with the Lake District when I was 16. It was my escape from my, you know, rough town upbringing. And um, I, then I realized it was broken and it wasn't as beautiful as I thought it was. And that was really, really difficult. And I spent years, you know, kind of sad about the state of nature in the UK. And now I found great power in reading these kind of books and realizing that, well, hang on, we can put it back. And a big part of, you know, there's some effort required and there's some political and cultural change required, but it is possible. And I mean, what a, what a goal, what an ambition and what a cause to fight for. But that involves learning to just reread the landscape. And when people actually look at something which is, 
oh, you know, green the colour of uh, the base of a billiard uh, table, and it's shorn, and it's one kind of grass. It's monoculture. It's a monocultural grassland, really. Um, people actually think that's countryside. They think that's living. And yet, uh, some years ago, I, I um, spent a bit of time at a place called Denmark Denmark Farm. It's near Betus Bledrus in, uh, in Mid Wales. And they basically just did their own rewilding. They just allowed things to go back to being hay meadows. And they did create ponds. They did do occasional things like putting up nest boxes but also um you know we don't need nest boxes birds will find a hole in a tree if there's a tree and if, if there's an old decaying tree there for them we don't need that sort of thing uh, anyways so uh the experiment at uh, denmark farm which happened under the aegis of something called the shared earth trust um ended up in just a few years having the sort of meadow where you could take kids and there would be butterflies everywhere and there'd be little shrews and things running around. So it was like a worked example of it doesn't take very long to all of a sudden have this plenitude of things, really. The only thing that was sad, though, was that um, I think a pair of barn owls nested there. But then, of course, because all the other adjoining farms didn't have the same sort of habitat, they were sort of confined. It was almost like a like a sort of zoo, really, uh, which then reminds us of the importance of wildlife corridors. Uh, we're talking today when they're talking about the threat to wildlife of um, new uh, high-speed train system. Well, what is the hi- new high-speed train system, if not an absolute barrier, which would stop so many things going from one side of the countryside to another? And, you know, we've got, you know, every road is that sort of barrier. Every 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 road with a car on it is uh, is a threat to tawny owls, which might be flying in the verges. It's a threat to uh, mammals who need to cross. Um, you know, something awful with seeing um, uh, road kill. But also, if you're driving, and I'm going to pull a rank on you know, just in terms of age, <laughs> you know, I remember a time when um, you would actually have to clean the moths and stuff off the. Um, windscreen of the the car no that doesn't happen and it's like last summer i was thinking do i i don't remember many moths yeah in the same way that yeah, it was, wasn't a great it was not a bad year but it wasn't a great year for butterflies but i'm thinking when i when i grew up i grew up with butterflies everywhere yeah my my grandfather's cabbage patch was full of cabbage white butterflies um and so something important is being lost but also you know, if we don't know that things were better then, we have this new baseline where we actually think everything's okay because, you know, we've got a couple of things. So there are more goldfinches around at the moment because people don't like your seeds and therefore there are charms of goldfinches everywhere. Yes, that's true. But other things are not doing so well. And I think the list of things not doing so well is much, much longer. Yeah. And so what, I mean, we're wildly off topic and scope here but that i said to you at the start i don't have any questions on a sheet of paper so screw it but um i'm not asking for all of the solutions because that would be ridiculous and i'm sure you don't have them but what does one do when faced with such you know overwhelming kind of well stress issue worry hopeless around the state of everything uh you know start doing small things I would encourage you to invite uh, Tom Bullo onto your show. Uh, please get him on. Tom Bullo has written a book called San Helen, 
where um, a very gifted writer of great integrity walked from um, his home, basically. He lives in uh, Ratnership. But anyway, San Helen is the old Roman road, which, as you know, goes from South Wales to North Wales. And he walked it in and, well, in and around the lockdowns um, and described what he saw. He comes from a farming family. Uh, he does look at rewilding. But along the way, in this collage of a book, he stopped off to talk to people about climate change. He talked to climate scientists and all the rest of it. So it's a hybrid book. Um, I can't think of a more important book that's going to be published. Um, well, as far as I'm concerned, in Wales, this is the most important book. Um, it's just beautifully written because Tom Bolo is a is you know gorgeous novelist. Um, but he's written this book and he's looking at the same questions because um, you know you mentioned rewilding and. Someone gets upset. Farmers get upset. Uh, I'll tell you how it uh, how that book uh, affected me. I've only read um, a quarter of it so far. Um, I went shopping and didn't buy any meat. I've always had bacon on Saturday mornings. Right, it's a small thing, right? Um, I was telling the kids because this this book isn't a proselytizing book saying do with all these things, but my God, it just feels to me like. Um, there are other writers who do it. Uh, Jay Griffiths is essays and so on. She writes very powerfully and adamantly, but without being sermonizing um, that we need to do things. So, for instance, you know, we've tried to reduce as much as we can on plastic, but we're going to just see if we can just go a bit further. These are very small things. Um, it's like the fact that my wife and I have talked about, do we need a car? Right, we're coming up to the point now where we probably are able to say no. I will go out and do the shopping on my push bike. Uh, my wife gets to uh, work on the bus and train. Uh, giving up the car would be a sacrifice, but not a huge sacrifice. It's not as if you know, it's not a bleeding hearts thing. But with those little things, I think that um, I'm not saying we're getting there. But yeah, that's just and Tom Bolo, wasn't writing about any of these things. But what he what he is doing is saying, you know, you've got to do something, uh, do something now, really. Um, and it, it starts with those things. Um, my daughters, uh, they're coming up to 18 and 14 now, they know all about um, the environment. They know about climate change to the point where they're almost innately worried about it. Um, how do you take that worry away and that anxiety away? Say, we are doing something to help, right? When we talk about big global issues, they can make you feel really powerless. Turn it into something where it goes, what are we going to do in our house, in, in, in our life, in our, in our lifestyle? Uh, it starts there and all of, all of a sudden I, I think to myself, there are various things happening there which are going to um, improve them, Right? This isn't just about the, the world. This will actually help to take away some of those fluttering butterflies of anxiety they have inside them. Totally. And and just give them some, I think particularly, I have children, my children, my, my daughter's two on Saturday. You've got young ones from you, you've got much younger ones. Yeah, yeah. My son's eight weeks old. But uh, I just, I think all the time about what sort of, not the cliche of what world they're inheriting, but how are they going to feel? Not just about how we behaved, but are they going to be able to cope with this? And I think you're absolutely right that, you know, actually whether you're 63 or 34 or our children, the answer is be on the good guys team. Mm. And you, know, you don't need to be perfect, but do something. And 
and jo- you know, oh God, join the fight, such a terrible thing to say, but I've found immense power in growing food. That's mine. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Immense power. In just- you don't even have to grow food, right? <laughs> so, this is really interesting, right? So we've got a very small garden, but for where we live in Cardiff, it's quite a big garden, but it's it is really a small garden. So we've got a really pretentious array of trees. We've got easily the most pretentious garden in West Cardiff, if not all of Cardiff, because um, if I look out the window now, looking uh, uh, towards the end of the garden, um, we have got native uh, apple types from Wales planted where they would be if you were looking down on the garden from up above, and they're planted where you would find them on the map of Wales. So there's Pigaderin in from Carmarthenshire, and then there's um, Swansea Bay, and then there's the prize possession, Avalenti, uh, which comes from Bardsey Island, and obviously they just found this one single salt-blasted, stunted specimen from which they've grant, grafted the um, uh, Avalenti. And then... Uh, if I look out um, in the other uh, direction in the garden, uh, we have the rare Denby plum. Um, it flowered fantastically last year. It was, it looked as if it was snowing. There were flurries of snow on the Denby plum. Um, why did I get so excited about it? Well, it's not just a rare plum species, which uh, managed to provide uh, enough to make a few crumbles and um, tr- some dried fruit, and they're far tastier than any Californian prunes you could um, airlift uh, uh, over, but uh, I met my wife at the National East Edward in Denby, so it's a symbol of our love. And last year it was furiously blossoming, as if to uh, to underline this. But the thing I was going to get onto, though, right? So these are all things that are planted. Then when I looked around the base of the walls last year, I was thinking that's sorrel. It's just because it's a, you know it's a walled garden. It's like those medieval hot as conclusives that you get in uh, old paintings. Um, there's a lot of shadow, right? So lots of the garden is in is in shadow. Great for uh, sorrel, and of course we were we were harvesting sorrel, and like sorrel on a salad, it's just and that just came, right? It's just it just arrived, and it's like it's that sort of thing where at the end of the day, nature is both beneficent and it can be unexpected. So in the same way that bird watchers in the reed beds at Minsmere and Suffolk one day saw an albatross fly across the reed beds because nature is that sort of unexpected. Um, there's all sorts of stuff. And yeah, like you, we have, oh, I couldn't use the apples from, we've got four trees, five trees? Yeah, five trees, okay. Good, good harvest last year. Couldn't use up the apples fast enough. So then I went to a cafe near the, uh, around the corner called Flock. I said, you don't fancy making some genuine the, 
the Welshest apple compot you could imagine, right? Um, with Pigadirin and uh, Avalentli and all the rest of it. And he took them, and I was going back and forth on the bike. You know, I went on three runs with like a, a, a bag full of them, and he was uh, serving up with porridge. So actually, there was even like a community value to it. And um, all of a sudden, you know, these things are, it, it is the taste of Wales. And those things are arranged on the map of Wales just as the names are uh, there. And they do have, like, um, Avalentli doesn't have much juice because you wouldn't expect it to be a juicy fruit on a, you know, a wind-blasted uh, island. But um, uh, also, uh, the place I love most of all in Wales. So, actually, for me, Avalentli reminds me of Bardsey Island, which, you know, if uh, Frank Sinatra left his heart in San Francisco, I left mine on Bardsey Island, and uh, it's a place I can't escape. That's amazing. And it, it just speaks, again, this is perhaps a little cliche or worthy, but it speaks to stewardship and guardianship, which I think is something else that gives us immense power and pride and purpose is you know you're like you say that apple tree is rare or disappearing or whatever but you've got one in your garden you tend to it and you love it and you look after it and if that doesn't connect you to the landscape then i don't know what will yeah but you know but it's also got um you know a cultural significance um um there is an apple species which i i love apple type not a species and there's an apple type in wales called tortine goyth um, the, which translates as the goose's arse. <laughs> and it does look like a goose's arse. And, you know, I just think to myself, you know, if we could have a little plantation of those and you planted them or whatever, I know that people would want to drink a nice pint of goose's arse cider um, because it will, have, it will have come from a particular place, yeah? Um, it's significant of a, of a particular place. So it's part of the same richness that you find in place names and in folk customs and in, you know, the stories we tell about particular places. It's a great um, a richness and reminding ourselves about just the absolute joyous you know living encyclopedia that there there is to read all around us yeah and i mean i we could talk about this stuff for hours but i'm going to deliberately derail us and bring us on to the subject that we're supposed to be talking about today and actually i have a confession to make which is i do try to read the books that i'm sent before i speak to people yours arrived yesterday so i haven't um but um I just, I'm conscious of time as well. And you've written 40, did you say? Yeah, over 40 now. So I'm, I'm getting in the hang of it. <laughs> you would argue. Um, yeah. And I mean, I was going to ask you a few other questions about your writing, but maybe let's just talk about The Turning Tide and where the inspiration came from, what it's about, why it matters to you, and maybe some of the stories or key takeaways. Uh, well, the Turning Tide came about because uh, there was a European-funded project. Do you remember those? <laughs> um, so the European Regional Development Fund uh, was keen to uh, promote five of the ports around the Irish Sea Basin. Um, and they were looking for artists of different ilk, different skills, different crafts, different abilities to um, to do something. And they're offering little pots of money to do so. So I thought, oh, I, I'd really like to do something about this because um, I've had jobs on islands um, in the Irish Sea. So I mentioned Bardsey. I worked on Bardsey when, in 1976 uh, when I was assistant warden there. I've been a shearwater slave uh, catching shearwaters on Scotcombe uh, when they were still ringing birds. Um, uh, 
uh, on the island uh, that stopped, you know, some years ago. But anyway, there was a period when they uh, used to ring Manxi Waters and they needed people foolish enough to work on the island in the day and then stay awake every night like some sort of crazy insomniac to study these nocturnal birds. Um, so anyway, I thought um, it would be very easy to suggest writing a you know little booklet or something or 20 poems. But I thought, no, there's a book in this because you know it's such a rich, rich place. So I set about uh, writing the book. I started doing so during the first lockdown. So whereas ordinarily I would travel somewhere and then when I would get back, I would read the books. I did it entirely the wrong way around or perhaps the right way around in the case of this book. So I just bought every book I could think of, read my way into the subject. And then when the lockdowns then sort of came to an end, I went to visit some places. So it's a curious hybrid because it's a bit more learned there are more references and and um, connections with other books in this book than i would normally have um, and less of if you like first hand eyewitness experience uh, but i decided that i would uh, visit some places in ireland um uh using my push bike um so that was um, you know a good thing to do because um you know if you're 63 uh, overweight have two kinds of arthritis proving that you could visit places near to these ports on your bike uh, would in, in itself be a sort of lesson because I looked at the map and I thought okay so the, the places themselves were Dublin and I thought well Dublin has this curious urban phenomenon now of Brent geese which come in in the winter and you now have not just Brent geese out in Dublin Bay but they're on city parks and they are everywhere so I thought well I just need to go to Dublin and catch one of the early commuter buses out to North Bull Island and see the Brent geese rising in the morning, and that will give me the actual experience. And I just need to follow them then to... Because they're in um, the grounds of community colleges and schools, and uh, technically some of those places, some of those parks in the middle of Dublin, have got significant enough populations to be designated under you know European bird directives. They're not there consistently enough, but it's interesting that you've now got this phenomenon where eelgrass, which is obviously one of their favourite foodstuffs, is in short supply in Dublin Bay. You have them as a little bed of it near Merion Gates, but basically eelgrass has declined, but they've adapted to go and feed off spilt soya um, in the docks area, and then they go and graze the... Um, the new grasslands, if you like, around uh, Dublin, and people are very custodial of them. They call them, you know, they keep people, they keep dogs away from, as they call them, the Canadian geese, because they know they come from Canada and further north, uh, and they feel as if they're entrusted with them. So um, I just basically put different places, good wildlife places, which were near to, or in the case of Dublin, right in the middle of um, uh, these ports. So the other, the ports in uh, South Wales, in West Wales rather, uh, speak for themselves. So Pembroke Dock and Fishguard are very near to the bird islands of uh, Skokholm, Skoma, uh, Grassholm, Ramsey and so on. Um, and I thought, okay, so it's very easy to write about uh, those because I've visited them quite a few times. I've only ever been to Grassholm once, and that was many years ago, but it was very sad and testing really as an occasion. Um, I went out there when I was working for the RSPB um, the birds 
uh, build nests, very much like magpies do on on land. They'll find something, some, sometimes something shiny. And anyway, they just find something and they build a nest. And because we are so profligate as a species, one of the things that gannets build their nests out of uh, on islands such as Grassholm, which is obviously one of the biggest trees in the world um, is discarded monofilament uh, fishing line and nets and that sort of stuff and some of the young birds can get trapped in their own nests they'll get the leg caught in their own nests so at the end of September early October uh, people go out there to release the young birds from the nests and in some cases if they're so tangled that you can't actually free the thing because the the cord or twine or line will have dug deeply into the uh, bird's legs. Um, you'll actually have to amputate the leg. But luckily, f- from studies, they found that the young birds can still go to, with one leg, can still go to West Africa and then return uh, as breeding birds a bit later on. Um, I went there with um, a scientifically trained um, ornithologist. Uh, we talked about some of the other aspects of the island, which he would perhaps have dismissed as romantic notions because Gwales features in the Mabinogion. Our finest folk tales in Wales mentions um, uh, Gwales and uh, it is perhaps the gateway to the Celtic other world, to Annon. And uh, a, a way of finding the Celtic other world, or at least the entrance to it, was the crossroads of the seasons, as I was explaining to him. Um, and he was sort of poo-pooing the thing and thinking I was just being a bit too rhapsodic and romantic about the whole idea until some birds appeared in the sky above us and they were of two species. There was a mixed flock of swallows and redwings. There were birds of summer commingling with birds of winter. And had there been anything else in there to sort of you know interrupt the sort of perfect balance, you might have thought this is just some sort of weird coincidence um and it was a weird coincidence because there were the birds of summer birds of winter all in one flock and uh okay yes it was you know late september early october so you'd they were, they were both still around the swallows were getting ready to fly to the reed beds of south africa and the red wings would have flown in from the taiga and the birch forests of russia and scandinavia but there they were uh, above us um and then so um it was very easy then for me to write about Grassholm because Grassholm had already been written about by the guy who, more than any other writer of um, books about nature, really turned me on to nature and to nature writing, and that was R.M. Lockley. Uh, R.M. Lockley had a had an Urzat honeymoon on Grassholm. He took his wife out there, but more interestingly, he took Sir Julian Huxley, um, the naturalist, and money that had been given to him by Alexander Corder, the film producer, and they went off and made a film called The Private Life of Gannets, which was the first wildlife film to ever win an Oscar. They took with them casks of water and some casks of cider. Uh, They managed to do underwater sequences. Um, So basically, you know, once you start researching something you find that um the stories are always there um one of the most interesting uh, early wildlife prosecutions happened on Grassholm because one of the founder one of the founders of the National Museum of Wales who was also a graphic artist who worked 
doing sketches for um, some of the newspapers at the time, happened to be on the island when some people from the Royal Navy landed on the island and went on an indiscriminate killing spree, killing birds and eggs. And they didn't know that there was a, a sketch artist who took drawings and that became a prosecution which the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals conducted in the county court in Halford West, and um, there was a successful prosecution as a as a consequence. Um, so really, you know, you just someone actually described this book. Um, a mate of mine actually, who was sent to copy the book to see whether he'd write a blurb for it, um, suggested that I may have brought a new kind of book into being, and it's a racontography. But it's just that when you're my age, you actually then go to look for things in your own life that you can tell, not because you're so full of yourself, but because they are quite interesting things that happened. You know, I haven't been a grass home recently, but I did go once and saw some interesting things. And then I therefore thought, well, the gannets of grass home are part of a shared population in the Irish Sea. Um, some of them you know, sometimes if numbers go down on Grassholm, they'll go up on Great Salty uh, off the South Wexford coast. So I, I cycled uh, over there, not to the island, of course. I went to Kilmore Key and caught the little salt, you know, the salty ferry out there. And you can see, therefore, that um, this Irish Sea population of birds um, is actually one uh, one population. So the terns that are found in Hodbarrow in England sometimes go to nest on Ladies Island uh, near Rosslare. Um, you know, so basically, it's it's again reminding us that these things don't have boundaries. You know, it's not sufficient for the UK to be looking after things because the things also fly to somewhere else. So if there is a license to shoot geese like the um, the Greenland white-fronted geese in Ireland, there's no point in protecting them in Wales. And actually, the moratorium on shooting Greenland white-fronted geese happened in Ireland first, and then the Welsh government caught up with it uh, more recently. And it's, it's just global thinking for these things because, um, you know, the story of lots of these birds is one which involves Greenland, Iceland, the Canadian Arctic, Dublin, Wales, and Ireland. So in part, it's about that, you know, in part, I've been writing about those connections, really, and that connectivity and underlining the fact that, you know, there's an incredible wealth of uh, nature. And uh, at its heart, it also allowed me to write about something I'd happily write about every day if I could, which is the Manxia water. So little lecture coming up. Half the world's population of Manxia waters nest on the islands of Wales. So that means we've got an international responsibility for them. They're astonishing birds, as the name suggests. Shea waters shear the waves. Like, they look like little albatrosses, um, actually members of the petrel family. And um, uh, they're also called tube noses because they have these little tubes on their bills and uh, it helps them to maybe um, sort of, you know, fly through salt spray or whatever. It is alleged that they are such great uh, uh, flyers. Their aerodynamic skills are such that they can fly through the tunnel of a big wave. I think that's maybe fanciful, but at the same time, maybe not. Um, they spend the summer in Wales. They then fly off to South America. They winter off the coast of um, Brazil, Uruguay, and Argentina. So again, back to international connections. You know, They fly across the South Atlantic and then come home. But when they do come home, as I call it, um, to Wales, uh, it's, they're just amazing birds because 
Um, they gather in huge, huge rafts and congregations in the evening because they have to wait for nightfall. Because once they land on, once they land on the island, they're entirely vulnerable. Because even though they're supreme flyers, they're really ungainly on land because the feet are set quite far back in the body. So they, at best, can manage a waddle. And if the moonlit night, then standing sentinel at the hole where the shearwaters nest, they often use old puffin burrows or whatever, will be a great black-backed gull which will swallow down a manx shearwater in a single gulp. And if you walk around the island the following morning, it's a sort of Golgotha of bones because all you find is sometimes the regurgitated sternum and the indigestible um, wings of manx shearwaters. But it's not just the sight of them, which I love, but it's the sound of them. In Pembrokeshire, they're known as cock lollies. And the cock lolly is a sort of onomatopoeic way of saying what the sound of the bird is. Uh, R.M. Lockley, the naturalist, once invited some of his friends to have a competition, sort of cocktail party competition, to try to work out the best way of describing this really macabre sound. It's a really weird sound. Um, And the competition winner was someone who said it sounded like the sound of a rooster in full cry seconds after its throat has been cut. And there is this blood-gargling sound to it. And so it's little wonder that the Vikings who landed on the Calf of Man, the little island um, off the Isle of Man, when they landed there and heard Manxia waters, they thought they were hearing the sound of the dead of drowned sailors um, and sort of wanted to not stay there very long. Um, and uh, the same is true when they landed on islands like Rum. Uh, in, in, in fact, I think there's a, an old Viking name for one of the hills on on, uh, on Rum where they actually uh, reference trolls because there is something sort of weird and mystical and otherworldly creatures about the sound of the Manxi water. But luckily, um, in my lifetime, I've spent, you know, most of my adult life in Wales. But I also spent a lot of time in South America and I've seen Manx waters there. So as far as I'm concerned, a bit like um, Macbeth's witches, you know, they've got the familiars or we're used to it now from the novels of Philip Pullman. Uh, the Manx water is my familiar. You know, I just, there's something about the spirit of that bird and the wanderlust of the bird. And um, I'm a bit of a night owl. I'm a bit of a nocturnal creature myself. But also, it's the one species that when I first came across Manx waters, I fell in love with them. Trouble is, Manx waters, if you're studying them, have a defense mechanism. The defense mechanism is that if a human being has the temerity to pick one up, to put a ring on it and weigh it or whatever, it will squirt out the contents of its stomach. Now, this would be half-digested jellyfish and fish and other things that it's skim-fed from the surface of the waves. And my first long encounter with Manxia waters was during the summer of 1976, which was a drought summer. I was on Bards Island. It was baking that summer. Um, There was no facility for having a shower or a bath. So every night that summer, I was richly sprayed by Manxia waters. So imagine sort of Imagine opening a tin of pilchards every night and instead of eating it, rubbing it into your hair and all over your T-shirt, whatever, and into your shorts and doing that every night. And the only way you could actually sort of clean up was to go swimming and that was, wasn't really getting rid of the, the sort of the deep aroma of the Manxi waters. Anyway, at the end of my summer working there, I caught the train from Pulheli 
going back to Aberystwyth, and it was full of holiday makers. There's a big holiday company at Butlins. But I travelled like some sort of minor prince or potentate because I had the carriage all to myself. Why was that? Well, it was because of the smell of me. Um, my brother, who picked me up in Aberystwyth, kept the windows open and even then was sick on a couple of occasions. And he describes it as like a riding shotgun with a dead dolphin. So it's not all, you know, rhapsody and beauty, whatever. Um, being sprayed by Manxi waters um, every night for, you know, a couple of months is um, uh, in the category of experience I would describe as insalubrious. <laughs> Yeah, and it's just, I mean, listening to you talk about it, you know, it's so obvious why you're a writer. But um, I'm just wondering, I mean, it's clear that the writing came first. You know, you've talked about that in those early years. But these adventures, I use that word accidentally, sort of these experiences that you've had, to what extent would you still want to go and have them if you weren't writing about them? You know, somebody said to me a long time ago on a podcast early on, that they write to be read rather than writing for writing's sake. You know, is that true of you or do you write for you? Um, it depends on, on what I'm writing, really. I mean, um, if I was given a choice, right, if I if I could do exactly what I want to do, I would write short stories, right? Um, I love the short story. I've written five collections of short stories now. One or two of them are reasonable, Um you know, if reasonable means that they've been anthologized and translated or whatever. Um, and those stories are actually the only honest stories um, in them. Um, and when I say honest, it's because I address something that uh, is significant. Um, because this is the adventure podcast and because you'd like to use the word adventure, <laughs> my brother and I have had some adventures in our lives. Um, we have gone deliberately to war zones on holiday. Uh, we did get on the wrong bus and came into San Salvador and ended up uh, in the middle of a crossfire. And my brother and I laughed as we ran, probably like Shane Williams on the wing playing rugby because we were moving to the side and jinking and all arrested like someone who was pretty possessed. And we were laughing at the, at the uh, prospect. Anyway, to get a bit more serious about my brother, my brother features in my first collection of essays, the one that my primary school teacher gave me. Because my second essay was about my treasures. And my treasure, my list of treasures in that essay, um, started with my brother. Uh, I was adopted. He wasn't. We're not actually blood brothers, but he is like a, you know, I love my brother deeply. Um, my brother had uh, has been through a bit of a tough time uh, in recent years. So I don't have that collection of essays. Otherwise, I'd be sort of reading them, you know, out to you now, just say, look, here's this collection of essays. But because I listed my brother as my treasure, I gave it to him, and I hope that some days when he's not feeling very well or feeling down, he can go to that and realize that his brother uh, loves him that much. Um, so there are a couple of stories in my short story collection which remind me of um, foolish adventures where my brother and I have been traipsing around uh, South America, uh, like the time we were chased out of Orange Walk by people with machetes because we'd won a pool game. Uh, or one pool game too many, and we played for money. Uh, there were all sorts of things like that that happened. But anyway, um, in my most recent collection of short stories, which came out when I was 60, so a small publisher 
paid me the courtesy of bringing out this collection almost as a like a birthday gift, really. So they brought out this collection of um, stories, and they're set in my favourite pub called the Merringer in Newport, which is not an ordinary pub. Um, far from it. It's the most extraordinary pub. In that collection, there's a story about two brothers, and they go on holiday to a war zone, so like my brother and I would occasionally do. Um, and this time, I didn't want to write about uh, us being in Guatemala or Nicaragua and stuff when you know there were actually, you know, uh, hostilities and the contras were lurking in the in the forests and stuff. Um, I wanted to set it somewhere else, so I decided to set it on the Golan Heights. I'd made that decision when I got on a train to go up to North Wales to research the book that I've just brought out. And there was a guy sitting opposite me on the train whom I knew. And he said, uh, what are you up to? You know, we got into sort of that sort of chit chat. And I said, well, I'm just writing a book about the Irish Sea. Uh, I'm going up to Hollyhead. I'm going to spend a bit of time in Hollyhead. And uh, he said, what else, what else are you writing? I said, well, I've just, you know, brought a collection of short stories um, uh, and I'm writing uh, some new stories now, and one of them is set in the, on the Golan Heights. And he said, "Oh, I've just come back from the Golan Heights." And then all the stuff I needed to know about the Golan Heights, I just met this guy who was on his trip on a, on the train going up to Bangor, and he had the little details I needed to make it something other than the Wikipedia Google Earth version of uh, the place I had uh, gone. Um, I want to tell you a bit about the Maranger, though, because you will like this story as someone who has travelled, and I need to sort of prove that the Maranger is that sort of pub. I went to the Hay Festival one year and stopped off in the Maranger because it's sort of halfway between Hay and Cardiff if you stop off in Newport. Uh, the Maranger is only five minutes walk away from uh, the train, so I thought, okay, I'll go along there, and um, I'd been taken to the train in uh, one of the courtesy cars that the Hay Festival had arranged because I'd been giving a, a talk there. And the guy who gave me a lift was a man called Jim Saunders. Jim Saunders has written some books. Uh, in fact, I first met Jim Saunders when I went into the Offers Dyke Information Centre on Offers in Knighton uh, in, in Powys. And I walked in there to look to see what sort of stuff they had on the walls and their little displays and stuff. And he said, uh, what do you know about... Um, Offers Dyke and the Offers Dyke path already? I said, not a lot, I said. I um, Really, what I know is what's in the book written by Yola Williams, the TV naturalist, and Jim Saunders. And he said, I am Jim Saunders. And so Jim Saunders gave me some extra little bits of information that made the trip special. Um, so anyway, I got to know Jim in that way, and Jim sometimes drives the cars for hay. And one year, he'd said he really wanted to write a book about Todd Morton. Uh, because he'd been taking photographs for Todd Morden and it's out of his patch. Um, but I said, well, just, you know, write the book because you've got the photographs, write the book. And because it's local interest, you will sell a thousand copies. You know, books of local interest, local history, you know, you can almost guarantee that the audience is there to sell a thousand copies. So you can't go wrong. Just, just bring it out yourself, uh, Jim. And I helped him a little bit with bringing the book out. So the following year, Jim again picked me up in the car to take me to the train. And this time he gave me a copy of the book called Todd Modern Extraordinary, uh, which was selling okay. And now he's, I think, sold the, the whole print run. So he was talking about the fact that in Todd Modern, they actually had names for different aspects of the landscape. 
and we were talking about calls and i think in the area i can't remember what the word is but they have a name for a call not a name to describe a particular call but a sort of technical term for a call so i went into the maringa and said this story to rob uh, who uh, runs the pub and then he said oh wait there he said so he nipped behind the bar and brought out a copy of a book it's graham rob's book called the calls of britain and ireland which is a complete list of all the calls that you find or whatever so i told rob i said so and he gave it to me he said he has a gift i said um so that book has been waiting for me to turn up. This book has been waiting there now for me to come up to have a pint of Imperial Stout. Not a pint, bottle of Imperial Stout. It's stronger there. You can't have a pint. And he said, no, I've got a few copies. You never know when they'll come in handy. So that that is why <laughs> the Maringa is such a fabulous, uh, fabulous pub, really. Um, and that book is really good because you know if you're if you're writing about you know something in Wales or whatever, you know there are plenty of stories about mountains and fewer, but there are still plenty of stories about valleys. But often when you look up uh, the name of a col, it'll have the shorthand version of the little story that goes into the naming of it, and it's a sort of extra source of stuff that you know we've got loads of stories about peaks, right? <clears throat> you know, plenty of stories about the top of Snowdon, uh, plenty of you know, cadet address if you go up there and sleep overnight, you know, you'll wake up either poet or mad and all that sort of stuff. But this has got the, the, the calls and all of a sudden those, if you like, depressions in the landscape have got their own stories, which reminds us that um, even the pockmarked bits of the land um, have um, got a story to be told about them. Yeah. And I, I just, I mean, I was going to ask you this offline, but I think there's a whole other conversation to be had around that and folklore and the tales and because there's so much there. And again, it's they're so linked to adventure and the outdoors and exploration, you know, this sense of place and connection to that landscape through the human naming. But um, it's a whole different conversation and we're technically 19 minutes over time, which I really don't mind. Um, so just to maybe draw this to a close for now, um, I always ask people the same two questions at the end of every episode. Um, the first one for you is what scares you? snakes <laughs> and, and in fact i'm gonna to have to amplify on that because some years ago i was really skint because i was drinking a lot and i couldn't pay some bills so i needed to come up with the sort of idea i could sell to either a radio or tv commissioner straight away so i took along my friend yola williams the tv naturalist and he was in his early days as a tv personality and he hadn't been on Spring Watch and Autumn Watch and all the rest of it. So we went along to pitch this idea to a commissioner that we wanted to make a series about poisonous snakes in Africa. And one of the USPs, one of the unique selling points of our idea, was not only that Yolo was going to come along, so we had a, a good, solid presenter, but that we were also going to take along me as a co-presenter as someone who's really scared of snakes. So it was that dynamic and Yola and I know each other really well. We shared a house for five years. We had lots of adventures together. So he would provoke me where we needed to be provoked. Uh, and then we, I think you'd have to describe it as a white lie, if not an outright lie. But we also said we needed to make this program fairly soon because the snakes were migrating. <laughs> anyway, they bought that. <laughs> and so uh, oh, within a couple of weeks, we were in uh, Morocco. And in the sort of the area where the foothills of the Atlas begins to bleed into desert, and we'd arranged to 
go and film an Egyptian cobra, which was holed up in a bit of scree. Now, the Egyptian cobra is the second largest cobra in Africa. It's incredibly venomous. Um, once it bites you, the necrosis settles in quite quickly. So your arm turns black if, well, you don't have time to see that, but it, it happens. Anyway, so there's an Egyptian cobra in this particular place. And um, so I was the cameraman. I bought a cheap camera to take out there. Um, we started the morning, oh, blistering morning of wildlife. In fact... We recorded something new to science that morning. Uh, we saw a hubara bustard, which is uh, the sort of turkey of the desert. It's the principal target species for falconers employed by the uh, families of the, the Middle East uh, when they go hunting. Uh, so that we were in a place where they were artificially trying to breed hubara bustards. So it's quite easy to find hubara bustard, but what we saw it doing was like the woodpecker finch on the Galapagos using a twig to stir up an ant's nest. You know, so the woodpecker finch dislodges invertebrates. This was actually using twigs to stir up ants to make them easy picking. So we filmed that, and we also, I think, filmed a Moosia's red start, which is the smallest red start. Beautiful male bird, um, you know, in sort of desert lands to have something which is chestnut and red and black and whatever was really, really striking. Anyway, we then went to film the Egyptian cobra, which had been tracked for us. We knew where it was. Um, I set the camera up. Uh, we'd had a little incident, which was very entertaining for YOLO, which is when we um, picked up a rock and there's a nest of scorpions and one ran up my trouser leg and he found that very amusing. But I just managed to set my nerves jangling so much. So it was scorpion up the trouser leg plus Egyptian cobra, which can grow up to eight feet long, totally venomous, whatever, um, set up the camera. All he has to do is, in true Hubara Bustard style, go and jiggle the stick around to bring the cobra out. Uh, he bottles it, I bottle it. The camera is still there, uh, complete with evidence of the Hubara Bustard. And more tragically for me, of course, it meant that we came back to Wales with me owing more money than we started off because we had the programme. So snakes, I, um, I'm fascinated by them. If there was a snake, I would go to look at it. I'd edge closer to it. Uh, William Condry, the Guardian's country diary uh, writer for many years, he has a lovely story about um, a torpid male uh, waking up in April, and um, he goes up to it and strokes its head. I wouldn't quite do that, but that is, I think, an image of you know a naturalist who is as one with uh, with nature. So yeah, scared of snakes, totally <laughs> amazing. <laughs> and then finally, what brings you hope? Oh, my kids! Uh, my 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 kids are, um, are like us as parents, um, but I think that. Uh, they are astute enough to know what needs doing. They are reverential enough to know that actually um, in order to solve some things, the answers are there. Nature shows us how to do things. Nature shows us how to build an aeroplane by following the aerodynamics of a bird's wing. Uh, but it also shows us how um, actually we have to just um, nod in the, in the direction of the complexity of it. One of my favourite writers is... Um, uh, Barry Lopez, who in Arctic Dreams, he talks about an encounter with a Lapland bunting, I think it was, and he nods 
respectfully in its direction. You know, we can offer little prayers to what we see around us, and I think that by taking them to see stuff, um, you know, it starts off with knowing something's name. Uh, in fact, we used to go to shop around the corner, and um, we would see pied wagtails roosting of an evening. So they would learn the name of the pied wagtail. My youngest soon got to know that the Welsh name is Sigledigut. It's the bird that shakes its tail. Nothing particularly remarkable about that. But then we actually sort of started to explore all the other names that the Sigledigut has got in Welsh. And because of its relationship with farmers and the land, and you'll often find pied wagtails around, um, you know, yards on farms and all the rest of it, there's a plenitude of names for the pied wagtail. So... In knowing that, and I mean, you can make a little poem up of just the Welsh names for the Pied Wagtail. But it also reminds us that if some of these things are lost, right? So if we if we lose the curlew in the spring or the cuckoo in the spring or whatever, it's not just part of the soundscape that's lost. There are all the poems and all the rest of the, that have been generated because of that. So um, I think we'll conclude, if you like, with this this one line. It's by Waldo Williams, who was one of the finest poets in Welsh, a uh, 20th century poet. And many poets have written about the sound of birds. But he has got a line of poetry in Welsh which describes and captures the swooping butterfly up and downness of the lapwing in spring. And he talks about Callwib a Cornicallod. The line dips and soars in a way mimetic of the bird flying. Um, that line is only possible if you see lapwings in spring. If you don't see lapwings in spring, it's not just a sign that the habitat has degraded or disappeared, but it also means that the poetry goes too, the whole culture around it. And at a time when sometimes you can be suspicious that there are two algorithms at work. One says... There are more and more nature books being written just as nature itself declines and that actually as things become scarcer, so there will be more nature books. We can only entrust when you're someone my age at 63 in your kids that notion of hope that they can get it right and they can get it right by doing those little things and actually feeling that they are empowered to make a little change because actually all those things I hope add up and I hope they add up to that uh, little word um, uh, uh, hope that we um, we desperately need. Yeah, I can't disagree with that. Uh, wonderful. Thank you so much. That was a sensational 90 minutes. Thank you. You're more than welcome. A real pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information, head to the Adventure Podcast at co.uk. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes. They're immensely helpful and help us to reach a wider audience.